crazy. Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humblebrags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello, and welcome to episode three of Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. I'm Matt Georges, and as some of you will already know, I've recently decided to take a taste of serendipity myself. Last month, July 2021, I handed in my notice at the Environment Agency, which is the Environmental Regulator for England, and it's where I've worked in various roles for nearly 16 years. I don't have a job to go to, and it seems unlikely this podcast is going to fill the financial gap. So, This summer, I'll be taking stock to see where my career is heading. It might make a good story, or it might not. Only time will tell. So, while we're waiting, I thought you'd like to hear from my next guest, whose career has taken some pretty sharp and intriguing turns. Her name is Anna Gunn, and we met when we both worked briefly at a bar in Bristol a long time ago. Anna made a huge impression on me, and as luck would have it, When I was thinking about making this podcast, I came across her profile on LinkedIn and realised she'd charted a completely different course to the one she'd seemed on when I met her. I was intrigued, so I got in touch, and I'm so glad I did. She's great company and has had, or I should say is having, an absolutely fascinating life. As listeners to the first two episodes will know, she's also become my editor and source of all-round podcasting wisdom. Right, housekeeping. You'll hear a little bit from Anna's cat on the way, and there are a few swearies in there too, so bear that in mind if there are little ears nearby. In terms of subject matter, we move deftly from aerospace engineering, through kebab shops, to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, and then on, to the Porto Photography Festival via forensic psychology. Along the way, we touch variously on the debilitating mental and physical effects of 80-hour weeks, bullying at work, and my experience of depression, so... If those aren't things you want to hear about right now, probably best to give this episode a swerve. Okay, housekeeping done. Let's have another taste of Serendipity Soup. Okay, so my name's Anna Gunn, but um, who and what I am and what do I do? That's, that's, a, that's a difficult question, and I'll tell you why. Because it's, it's a question that kind of comes with a label. And it's, a, it's, a, it's labels that I don't really fit in, which mm. is a difficult thing to say, and this is probably a difficult thing to, to understand. Let me, let me try and elaborate. And I'm not being facetious when I say, if you ask me that question on, on a different day of the week, it will be a different thing. Mm. Because I have so many roles... Okay, my CV reads right now that I'm director and founder of a photography festival here in Porto. I'm also founder and director of my photography business. I have, I'm a 
mentor and counsellor to photographers and artists. I also work as a content creator. I manage social media accounts. I also have YouTube and video and film content creation. Yeah. It's really difficult to say what I'm currently doing. That's nice, isn't it? It's a bit of pick and mix. Yeah. When I met you, you were doing a degree in aeronautical engineering? Aerospace manufacturing engineering, yeah. Blimey. I mean, that that was one of the reasons I was interested in speaking to you, because that must be a bit of a journey. The thing about that degree is that your response to blimey like the the title even just saying aerospace manufacturing engineering I try not to say that very often and I only now say it in certain situations where I am literally name dropping as a way of perhaps if they're being a little bit diminutive towards me it was something that I did for all the wrong reasons but as it turns out it's helped me enormously the minute I say it, everybody's eyes kind of like there's a glint of recognition of, oh, so you're not an airhead or you're not just a creative, which is a very bad box people put you in. I often say about the people on my course that it's like they were Brighton Rock and if you cut them in half, it would say engineer in the middle, whereas if you cut me in half, I'd bleed. And that's not to diminish engineers or people on that course, but they they lived and breathed it and it was their thing. And and I didn't know that it wasn't until, probably until after the course, yeah. Wow. So you said you did it for all the wrong reasons. What What were those reasons? Oh, because I could and because it was shinier, because people told me I couldn't do it, which is a terrible reason to do anything. But you you say that to me and it is literally like waving a red flag. I am the sort of person that will will go off and do something because you've told me I can't. Including what, a four-year aerospace degree? There's a lot of people in my life who've told me I can't do things and it, it obviously depends like where that comes down from. I used to work and the, I used to work in a kebab shop. I was very young at the time and quite impressionable because I was doing my engineering GNVQ at the time and the people I was working with were all men and they all told me that I couldn't do it. They had a view on engineering in the kebab shop. This is the interesting thing about that shop. My colleagues were all Cyprians. So they were all immigrants to Britain. And I loved my colleagues because they stood up for me. All my colleagues had a PhD in electrical engineering, all of them. And they would help me at night do my electrical engineering homework from the GMVQ. They were my champions, but my boss turned around and went, she's never going to go to university. And when I got in to university... It was it was a bit of a, here, uh, here's my resignation and uh, I'm off to uni. And you know where to put it. I, I was a bit more gracious at the time about that. Well, well done you. I don't think I Yeah. <laughs> so the guys you were working with uh, were Cypriot, were they? And yeah. They, and so they were all electrical engineers working in a kebab shop. Immigrants at the time were obviously trying to get any job that they could. And I love them. They literally, they treated me like 
like family and they they helped me with my homework and they were <laughs> they were great because I was a novelty of doing engineering and they, and it was a chance for them to perhaps show that they were valid because it wasn't you know the job that they were doing probably wasn't what they ever imagined they would be doing but that's what they ended up doing just to be in a country that they wanted to be in and look after their family. So where, where, where did you grow up originally? Originally, I grew up in a very privileged little village called Kinver outside of Birmingham. Age of 14, I moved to Wales and I then started my engineering course, well, the GMVQ. The GMVQ was in Llanetli at the time and because I was one of three females that started the course, I was the only one that finished. Out they, of how many, roughly? There was three females, but there must have been 15 guys on the course. But it, the college was very, it was guys. And because they needed to fill their quotas, they literally shoved me on every course they could. So I think I came away with some welding certificates, NVQs in lays and bench work. I went to work in a factory that welded up fans for intern stuff. I didn't really question being the only female in a male-dominated environment until I went into, into my internship. And my internship on the first day, they were really cross with me. And I remember, like, not really understanding why there was a bit of attitude towards me until lunchtime and then one of them turned around and said to me well we've been told by our foreman to take all the porn off our lockers and to watch our language around you so we're not very happy that you're here and I was like oh fuck that put it back up it's fine you know just to be one of the one of the lads from then on, they then decided to try and play all of the pranks they possibly could on me in the space of a week. So I had Swarfiga put in my pockets. I had mice put in my welding boots. They tried. They welded up my steel toe caps. And the last day, I was actually welded into the crate that they were shipping on the on the fan. And I was like, "Oh, you sneaky buggers." That's that's one way of reacting. Another way would be, so my way of reacting to being welded into a shipping crate would have been sheer terror. No, because I knew that they'd get into ship with their foreman. So I knew that I'd be let out sooner or later. So I just, I, it's a waiting game. After all of the pranks that they'd already pulled on me that week, I just, I knew it's like, it's like a blaze of glory. Their days are boring on the on the factory floor. It's just boring after boring. So they were using that week as a way of stocking up their stories for the entire rest of the year and probably beyond. You know, I knew being welded into into the crate when I turned around and realised what they'd done. I was like, okay, how long how long is it that I'm going to have to wait? And I was trying to calculate. Okay, it's four p.m. now. Knockoff time is at 5 p.m. By 5 p.m., you're going to have to have let me out because your foreman is going to go utterly ballistic with you for doing this to me. So you will have had to have done this in a way that he doesn't know. So by 5 p.m., I knew that I'd be out. Um, that's a very calm reaction. And, and and were you let out? I mean... Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're here now, so, like, yeah, presumably. Course, yeah. Fucking hell. 
you know the environment that you're in at that point in time. You know that, you know, they're, they're just going to prank you. And do you think they would have done the same to a male intern? Oh, hell yes. Probably not, not with the same rigorousness that they, they did to me. The mice thing, they wouldn't have done that to a bloke. Right, they thought that I'd be squeamish at that, so that was something that they did extra for me. But no, the rigorousness of it, no. They would have done lots of mini things over a longer space of time to a bloke. It's a rite of passage, and for them to do it to me, they were trying to show me that I was no different to them and that they were trying to treat me the same. If they didn't treat you in that way, it just meant that you weren't liked. Mm. So when was this? This was when you were aged, what, 16? Yeah, GMVQs are what replacement for A-levels, supposedly, so 16 to 18, yeah. That's pretty hardcore. I still think, I know what you're saying about the kind of, the bounce, but it's still quite hardcore, I still think. Maybe I'm a bit of a softie. Looking back on it now, people nowadays in context will classify that as hazing, which is now frowned upon. And I'm not saying that these are things to be encouraged, but to put it in context, in the 90s, this was something that was just done. And also, I needed validation. I needed the piece of paper and I needed, you know, I needed to work with these guys and I needed everything to be all right. So there is a role that you put yourself in and you work through. And you know that you're not going to be physically harmed because they have somebody to answer to. So there is a line that's already there for you and you know that you're going to be protected. Up until that point, it's, you know, your fair game, as it were. So long as you can take it as a laugh, and it was, you, you can, you'll be all right with it. So you went from there, you got your GMPQ, and then you did a degree. That was where I, I met you. I think we were working in a bar in central Bristol. Yes. Which was an interesting place to work with some interesting people in it. Would you agree? <laughs> I'm using interesting in the sense of wasn't intellectually challenging, but it was challenging, I would say. For me, it was just a number. It was like one of a number of jobs that I needed to get in the summer. For, for money to tide me over until the next university term. So for me, it was like, you just get on with it. The fact that I had, uh, or that I met people like you along the way, actually made the nights nicer and easier to get through. Because at least then, if you're working alongside people that are, you know, a laugh and really nice people, you'll get through it a lot quicker. And that was why I was grateful for that. Yeah. No, you're right. They were, they were a really nice group of people and it's still really good fun to work with and really supportive as well. We worked as a team. I remember that. And you kind of had to when you've got like three or four deep at the bar and people shouting and waving money in your face. You've got to be able to rely on the people around you to to help you out and to do everything you need to do. So, yeah, I, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. That's a very positive way of looking at it. <laughs> I've had other pub jobs that haven't had that camaraderie. So, it, again, it, it is, it's about who the people around you at that time were. Yeah, definitely. So this was in Bristol. You were at the University of West of England. Um, you're doing your degree and then you finished it. That must have been really difficult, really hard work, I'm guessing. A lot of maths, a lot of physics, a lot of just, I don't know, just hard work, was it? 
it was academic aerospace so there is a lot of maths there's a lot of physics there's a lot of things in it so it's academically challenging I'm not completely sure that it was the hardest thing I've ever done it's fine I don't know what you seem almost embarrassed to say that but it's an accolade you know I I kind of I'm one that I don't really use so I'm kind of very wary about bringing it out the drawer a, a little bit but yeah it's maths physics as you would expect it's so it's an academic um subject that is the same as probably any other degree that you need to to work hard at and and get and work through it's it, you know that's what degrees are there for is academia yeah and so so after that there was it sounds as though at some point there was a very sharp change in direction have i have i understood this right that 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 you didn't go into the aerospace industry you decided to head for the london academy of music and dramatic arts yeah it's a bit of a left turn in um, in in things i mean what happened there september the 11th right happened. So the year before I graduated, September the 11th had happened and I was going for jobs alongside people who had actually been fired and were and had done the job for 25 years. They had used it as an exercise of downsizing all of the aerospace industry in Bristol. Of course, that meant that my industry had completely gone kaput. So I got a temp job. It was an insurance company. I started out as a secretary. They found out that I had just graduated as an engineer and then I got promoted very quickly through the ranks to become a broker and to then head up the new business team because they realised that I could talk to engineering companies, understand their risk and then talk about their risk to the insurers and I could act as the go-between. So it was my job to translate the engineering companies to the insurers to make sure they understood their business a bit more and to lower their insurance premiums essentially but you looked around the office and there was nobody in that office if you started talking to them on a deep level there was nobody in the office who ever grew up thinking that they were going to one day become an insurance broker there was nobody who went yay when I grow up this is what I want to do and you know I've described it in my perhaps less than kind way of describing it has been where dreams go to die that's perhaps a little unfair to all my colleagues who do actually enjoy that business and I I I apologize to to those people if you enjoy it then albeit for me to say that that's not a good place or good job it was just not for me I started searching around looking for other things to do and I came across a lighting course in Bristol and I did a I think it was like a, a week's course um, in Bristol on lighting. Um, this is stage lighting, is it? Yeah. Right. And I realised that it was it was quite a cool thing. So then the next thing I did was look at what, what other courses I might be able to do. And my friend told me to look at a course in Lambda because they were doing stage lighting. And he said, if I enjoy this... I might enjoy going down to London. So I booked myself some holiday uh, from work and I went down and did a two-week course. At the end of my two weeks in London, I was offered a place on their two-year course in London. 
and they said to me if you want we we can do give you an interview now and I was like yep and they gave me an interview and they gave me the, a place saying well the only thing we're a bit worried about is the fact that you don't have sound but we can work with that and I remember I came out of my interview and where they just offered me the placement and I'd said yes I picked up the phone to my boss and I said okay it's Friday now just so you know on Monday when I get back I'm going to be handing you my resignation <laughs> and I was I literally gave him my three month notice and at the end of the three months I think my notice was up on the Friday and I moved to London on the Saturday and then I started the course on the Monday. Wow. You ask about the degree, about it must have been hard work. It wasn't a patch on Lambda. I've never worked as hard in my life as Lambda. And out of all of the, my certificates, out of all of the posh titles I have, the course from Lambda is the one that I am most proudest of. Wow. You were up at 10 a.m. and you, you didn't finish until 10 p.m., Monday to Saturday. Working in the stage, working on the shows, it's incredibly hard work, it's incredibly physical, and it's incredible amount of work that goes into each and every show. People who are in theatre actually work harder than, than most people. Lambda were, were keen to have you on. They said, yeah, you know, this is, you, you've got everything apart from a kind of background in sound. Did they fund you or did you fund it yourself? Well, no, which is why I, I think I worked out that I was averaging an 80-hour week in order to be in Lambda and to work in bars enough to fund myself. I remember... Just coming into that Christmas, I was working 80-hour weeks. Now, I was fortunate that just, I think I entered January, I was awarded a scholarship. Now, I remember getting that scholarship and being in utter floods of tears because of what it meant to me about literally how much I'd literally gone through to get there because 80-hour weeks, to put that into perspective because I don't recommend it to anybody. It's not something I ever, ever think anybody should ever go through. 80-hour weeks looks like you can't take on enough food in order to sustain the physical amount of hours you're awake. So my weight loss dramatically happened in three months. I went from being a healthy eight stone to six stone. The hours I was sleeping I was probably sleeping less than five hours a night and what that generally looks like is I was angry all the time to the point that my I think my sister called me one morning 15 minutes before my alarm was due to go off and I I raged at her because I'd lost 15 minutes of sleep and I think any sleep-deprived parent will understand what sleep deprivation actually looks like to you. But I remember the loss of colours. Everything becomes very grey. You don't actually see colours as viv vividly as you would. There are very distinct physical things that you go through with sleep deprivation. In January, being given that scholarship meant 
I could reduce my hours and actually have a, a normal life. So Lambda for me was an incredible, incredible time. And I just wish that I had not had to work so hard so that I could have enjoyed it more. Wow, that's that is tough because you described long, long days actually working in theatres and then presumably you're fitting shifts in bars around those already very long hours. And, yeah. then, and then on the day that you should have been resting on a Sunday, presumably you're trying to work then as well. Sundays were my 12-12 days. I would literally, my shift on Sunday would be 12 to 12. (laughs) And and Thursday, Friday and Saturdays in London, you weren't finished like until 4am. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm not surprised you, there was such a dramatic physical effect on you. Yeah, yeah. So this kind of plays into one of the reasons I've started this podcast and you won't know this, but around about 10 years ago, I had basically a complete breakdown. And there was a lot of stuff going on from all sorts of directions. And basically, I just just lost it. And one of the things that kind of emerged from that as I kind of put myself back together again, as my wife helped me do that and so on, was this sense of shame that I'm an economist now. I retrained as a result of this. But I'd always kind of compared myself to people working in the city. I'd always thought, you know, these are people who who appear very rich, very successful. They seem to work incredibly long hours, you know, 70, 80 hour weeks, potentially. They seem able to cope. And here's me at the time, I was working in the environment agency, which is a public sector job. So we're not talking kind of hugely intense pressure here by any means. And I was like, look at the state of me. I've literally kind of hit the wall. And so I was like, well, what? What does it even mean to be successful then? Can I, are, are those people successful? And it took me a long time and I'm still not really there yet to get the idea out of my head that to be successful is to work that kind of level and to, to earn, you know, money that comes with it. So I'm kind of, I see what you're saying that nobody should ever have to go through those, those, that sort of situation. But at the same time, there's a certain cachet for me that you have because you went through it. And it's like, I've got respect for you for that. And you, your facial expression says to me that maybe I shouldn't. It seems like you're so hardworking that is worthy of respect, despite the fact that it clearly had a devastating impact on you. I actually have quite a, an aggressive response to some of the t- cliches and the things that society says right now that everybody likes to pick up on especially the I'm busy phrase or meritocracy Mm. where the idea that if you work hard enough you'll succeed well two things in that firstly is the word success really bothers me because essentially it's a nonsense word that society has made up because success is just it's neither here nor there, really, and you're never likely to get there. And the meritocracy of if you work hard enough, you'll get there is the biggest lie I feel that most of society is being fed today. It's almost worse in America, I think, than anywhere else in the world, this American dream of you work hard and you'll be, you know, you'll get there. It's just 
horrific that people are still spouting this and people are, are having to believe it because it's part of society's makeup. I mean, logically, we all know in the last two years with movements such as Black Lives Matter and these things have come to light that we are not all starting from the same position. So firstly, it doesn't matter how hard some people work, their starting place is far behind other people with massive privilege. There's no way that you can catch up with privilege. It's just not possible. So firstly, working hard and you'll get there is utter crap. I acknowledge that, but I was able to put myself in a position to go to university. Many others are not able to do that. So I was privileged and I was also not hindered by my colour or where I was in the world. None of those things hindered me. I was in a privileged country that allowed me to go to university. I was in a privileged country that allowed me to get a job that then put me through the next course that I wanted to do. Now, I am privileged because of that. I did not start in the same starting place as many others. So working hard has paid off for me. But other people who work just as hard, if not harder than me, and work 80 hours plus their entire life have not been so privileged. They're not working from the same starting point. So that's point number one, which is why I really I rally very hard against this um, meritocracy. The other thing is, is where are you born in the world? Like, let's put this into context. If you are born in a country that does not have universities, that does not have state-funded education, you're not in the same place. And working hard for you will mean very different things. Working hard for you will possibly mean walking for 17 hours a day just to get water, let alone education or actually have a life that we lead so that's you know privilege looks incredibly different to to people across the globe and so luck plays an awfully big part and and I dare anybody who is any level of success and I say that with air quotes and I hate air quotes but you know what I mean it's like this this imaginary unicorn vision of success of somebody who is revered for what for being lucky for being privileged enough to be allowed the position that they hold today and whatever that is you do not get to be at the top without a huge huge amount of luck and anybody who says different is a liar (laughs) <laughs> I've heard lots and of people I, say I will, different I will happily call anybody out on that it doesn't matter who you are if you are at the top of a company if you are at the top of whatever however whatever your privilege looks like if you can t- honestly tell me that you got there by anything other than a huge dose of luck you are lying either to yourself or to other people this idea that we love the idea of an underdog and we love the idea that, you know, you can just work hard and get there and it's told in every movie and every film and every book and people lap it up because they love it, because they see themselves as that underdog. But it's just a lie. 
It's not they it's not the complete package. It's like one of many, many, many uh, ingredients that go into it. And I, I, I rally up so hard against it because it, I just I feel like it's the biggest lie. <laughs> mm, I guess my counter argument would be, you know, you've you, you had a reasonably hard time of it to begin with. You worked hard and now you're very successful. No. That word success, that's really funny. You I seem just, successful I, to me. You seem, you're, you're running, okay, let me define success for you. You're running your own business. You've moved to another country. So I assume you've learned a whole new language and made a whole new set of friends and, and colleagues. I'm looking at your your CV. So um, you set up the Womanshan exhibition. You have set up the Porto Photography Festival. You've done open university courses on systems thinking, on decision making, on the future of education, on understanding autism, on forensic psychology. That is success to me, that I'm amazed by what you've achieved. And that's why one of the reasons I'm interviewing you. Everybody will define success very differently in their own words. Success to me is something I will never achieve because success to me is achieving your goals but somebody like me is somebody that almost approaches a goal that I've set and before I've reached that goal I will be moving the goalpost to somewhere else I will never achieve it because I'm always going to reset that goal does that make you happy resetting um, never achieving your goal <laughs> the thing is is that people assume that when you you're only happy when you achieve your goal but people forget that there's a whole journey along the way that's called life that's to be lived and enjoyed I achieve a goal but my goal is then moved on and I go after that goal but the path along the way is the thing that I enjoy it's called life and that's where I get to meet different people I get to meet people that are not just in one industry sector, but in a lot. I am thirsty and curious. So I go after a great many different things. I am curious about life, how it works, how it operates in all different areas. Um, and so my curiosity often is like a tree root. It goes in all different directions looking for for things that it finds interesting. Mm, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. So you, when you're looking at, for example, forensic psychology and systems thinking, it's because you just thought that sounds interesting. Forensic psychology is massively interesting because it's how people think, but it's also how people view the world and look at the world. Obviously, I'm somebody who works very visually I photograph things. I also talk about photos. I talk about art a lot. I talk about visual medium. And to me, forensic science is about looking and interpreting what you've seen. That course was massively interesting to me because it taught me that a lot of things people take on and see are, is then interpreted and processed. And if people then tell you what they see, it's actually very different to the thing that was actually seen, which is why 
in police lineups, they have to be very careful about how they present the evidence to people. After an incident or an accident, you're actually taken away from the scene and asked not to talk to other people because you can contaminate your own memory or your own perception of the scene, which is, for me, fascinating when it comes to visual arts. It's that you're actually not just rep looking at an image, but you are putting your own interpretation onto that image which is why I'm, I was fascinated by it, because it, it, it translates directly into something else for me. So for me, all of these information, it's... it's this is, this is um, a little bit about how, how my brain works. My brain work doesn't work in, OK, so I'm in photography, so I'm going to study everything about photography. My 10,000 hours is going to be purely in photography. Well you're never going to come up with anything original if that's the case. It's just, it's not. You're just going to regurgitate what other people have done. My way of looking at the world is give me everything you've got because I want to see how everything ties in. You don't work in a vacuum. You don't work in isolation. We're not... 2020, for instance, isn't just COVID. It's a whole lot of things how we got there as a society, um, what lessons did we miss from history with, with the Spanish flu, how did that go down, why did we not understand it the first time, how did we miss it, how, how are we... In, like, there's, there's, a, there's not 2020 just there as a year. Everything around it has kind of entwined with it, which is why um i look so broadly at so many different things i need to know how so many different things work and operate to understand myself and my world and my vision better because if i'm going to produce content or work i want it to be an original idea i want to have something to say if i don't have anything to say it's because i haven't taken on enough content i haven't got a library of information to pull from we couldn't be having this conversation because i wouldn't have anything to say i wouldn't have an opinion on anything and because i hadn't actually thought about these things before but when you've looked sideways at everything that's out there you kind of then go okay so what what sort of things are impacting me as a you know on my life and what do I want to do with it I'm just thinking about the photography side of things and 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 the, the moving kind of back into the arc of your career you you were at Lambda and then you presumably did some actual work in the theatre industry I'm guessing yeah yeah I was on tour for a little while um I went on tour with a, a couple of shows the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts is one of the top in London. You go in there and as a technician you come out and you've got work because everybody understands what you've, you know, the training that you've received. And so I was immediately working with within the West End. I went out on tour. I'd already met my now husband and I thought that I could move to Portugal but then travel back into London and work because it's a two-hour flight from Porto straight into London but that's not the way things work the minute people found out I was out the country that was to them you're in another world you don't exist anymore first couple of years here in Porto uh, in, in Portugal was incredibly difficult learning a new language learning a new culture um, I had no idea what that would mean I had no idea what culture actually meant 
I thought it meant different art, different theatre, different language. It doesn't. It means an entirely different way of thinking, um, which I hadn't appreciated, I didn't understand. Photography came about because my husband was into it. We travelled Portugal with cameras, so we kind of were taking our holiday snaps as we went and learning photography as we went, and then the photography became bigger and bigger. And I think at one point we just said, OK, this is an expensive hobby if we don't make a profession out of this now. But I, I also started teaching in film and sound and, uh, and lighting here in some of the universities here. And I found that quite challenging. Teaching is, a, is another whole profession that's, wow, I, all teachers out there, huge respect. They're, they're incredible people. Doing that kind of obviously gives you a broader in-depth knowledge of what you're doing. That was really how the company grew. And I put together a few online courses and put those out at the same time. I think in learning from other people and from the internet, which is what we were doing at the time, is learning our craft through the greatest photographers of time through the internet... I love the 21st century. Thank you that you exist. I kind of learned that these people were not coming to Portugal, but they're going to every other country in the world, teaching their workshops everywhere else. And so it became quite a mission for me to then get these photographers here to Porto and to start teaching here. So the festival was born in that way of pretty much selfish necessity of needing these people here to meet. And, the, I mean, the great thing about that is, you know, over the years that I've done it, I have met some of my idols and it's been amazing to get to know and to, to be friends with them and to, you know, to learn from the best in the world, again, is privilege. It's, it's a huge privilege. Of course it is, but it's one that you worked for. It's this, there's still this kind of um, interplay, isn't there, between... The privilege of, say, living in Portugal in, in a Western country in the 21st century. But then it's you that went and did this and got those people there. So there is that interplay. There is. But I would also say it's interplayed with a lot of luck. L lucky and privilege. I have resources. I have the Internet. I literally... my. The, the first photographer I contacted was a National Geographic photographer and I contacted him via Snapchat because I have a mobile phone. So that's not, that's privilege because I have a phone and I knew how to use Snapchat. So again, it's yes, work hard, but there's a good dose of privilege alongside it. I knew how to use the technology that's around and fortunately for me, when I asked, that person was available and free and was able to say yes to me. So, again, luck. Mm. Yeah, so no, see, these things saying, are yeah. very intertwined. They don't exist on their own. They're very, very much um, together. Yes, I work very hard to put the festival together. Yes, it, it, it pretty much takes up an entire year to put it together. And it lasts for so little amount of the year, considering how much you actually work hard for it. Like I have learned not just not just event management or business or uh, leadership or how to manage teams. 
I've learned a lot about my own personal journey. I've learned how people interact. I've learned how people uh, think a little bit more. I've also seen some amazing artwork. I've got to know amazing photographers and I've been part of their journey. I think it was a couple of years ago, I did a, a talk for a university here and uh, their sociology students um, on the impact, sociology impact of the festival. Um, and that made me um, completely evaluate the success of the festival in a completely different way. And I described it to the students as the festival is a little bit like I'm throwing a pebble in, the, in a still pond. So, yes, it's my work that has put the pebble out there. And then these ripples go out, but it's only when the ripples then reach the shore that they start coming back to you and you find out the impact of that stone in the first place. And that impact has been from other people going out and creating their own businesses on the back of a workshop. I've seen one particular photographer actually become a Nat Geo photographer on the back of one of them. I've seen others that have elevated their work. I've seen development of portfolio. I've, but more importantly, I've got really strong friendships with these people that's been the thing that has mattered the most to me is knowing these people and really developing connections with them and understanding what their needs are and being able to help them and strengthen what they need but it's which is you know a, a physical experience let's face it in covid we're all missing but a physical experience like that of bonding and bringing people together was why it was so important to me and, it, you know, and those bonds still exist today. That I know all of the people who've come to the workshops. I know them and I've watched them and I see their work and I get the privilege of watching them develop, not just as artists, but as people, which is far more important. So you're asking, like, but the goal, the goal is a thing that pleases you and you know it's, it's this wonderful journey that, you know, I've been privileged to... to be alongside other people and see their journey and see how they've grown and what they've taken from it because you could put something out there and you never know what people are going to take from it you never quite know what are they going to learn from it you might design a course or you might design an experience in such a way that you hope somebody will take this from it but actually what they actually take from it is is you know is very personal very individual um and and a privilege to watch and see and you 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 just hope um that what they take away is is something that they're able to use mm. you you talked about success um as being in one way helping other people and seeing how they develop and you mentioned that you have this kind of mentoring side to what you do now um can you can you tell me a bit more about that what what, what does that involve it pretty much involves an open door. Probably like many people in a specific profession tend to sometimes look a little bit inwards, whereas actually they need to look a little bit more outwards. So I I will talk to people about their habits, what they do on a daily basis, what they do to be okay, because I think the idea that artists and this tortured mentality is very, very, like, it's done. Please, we need to we need to move past that. 
So I will, you know, it's a very holistic uh, view on somebody's work, their life, but I will more importantly meet with them where they are in their life. Whatever challenge they're facing in their life, we'll look at and see together to see if there's a way around it. And obviously in COVID, I think at the beginning of COVID, a lot of photographers were having to change their business, especially if they were in wedding, portrait or anything that required them to be out of the house so there's a lot of people who didn't know how to look at their business and change it around and and got stuck and then there's an awful lot of other people who didn't need that but needed to know that there was a support or there was a community there for them because often working in isolation is never it's not good for the mind it doesn't it doesn't do you any good and it doesn't do creators any good to be inwards because it means that it's very easy to get self-absorbed. Mm. So we, we're kind of coming to the end of the, the time we've got, really. Um, do you... Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, apart from yourself, has there any, been anyone else? I mean, you've talked a lot about the interplay of kind of luck, circumstances and so on. Has there been anybody else that, that has really kind of helped you get where you are now? There's a reel of names, if I was to reel off all the names, I w- wouldn't have breath. At every stage of my entire life, there's been other people behind me. There's been some people who have supported me openly. There's been others who've hated on me openly, and they've also driven me. There have been people who have paved the way for me. There have been people who have advocated for me. In the festival alone, literally, I, it's an Oscar list. Of, of people who've helped me, who've said yes to me, who've trusted me, who've given me their work, allowed me to do what I wanted with it, allowed me to place it. And there's a whole bunch of other people who just supported me, gave me hours and hours and hours of time. And that's been the story of my life. There's been a reel of people who've helped me. And again, I would challenge anybody at the top to say otherwise. I would challenge anybody uh, at the top of whatever vertical they're in to say that they, they got there on their own. It's, it's utter rubbish. Nobody, nobody gets anywhere without help and support from family, friends, teachers, from those around them, from critics. Critics are particularly useful at times. I honestly, you, it's, you don't live in a bubble. We like to think we do, but it's not true. Mm. This hasn't taken the, the direction that I thought it would, but I could, I could talk to you for hours, Anna. I really could. Just wanted to say thank you for sparing the time for me, considering how many different things you're doing and covering such a wide range of topics with such um, erudition. The minute I saw the title of Serendipity Soup, I was already in. Serendipity, lots of people just think shows up and is there for some people and not for others. So I, I really hope that this, this goes some way to explain or help those who are struggling with it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, there you have it. Huge thanks to Anna for taking the time to talk to me and for all her advice and support to help me get this podcast off the ground. She is such a legend. Thanks also to Julian Holmes for his superb cover artwork, to Acast for hosting, 
and of course to you for listening. Remember, if you think you could add some flavour to Serendipity Soup, then email me at soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com. See you soon for another serving.